Welcome to NCBA's Cattleman's Call podcast with host Lane Nordland. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to more conversations here on the Cattleman's Call podcast. As the voice of Dan McCarty said, my name is Lane Nordland, and today we are going to be talking about predators and their impact on U.S. cattle producers and just our rural communities across the nation. Uh, we're going to be joined by Caitlin Glover, Executive Director of the Public Lands Council and the National Cattlemen's Beef Association's Natural Resources Lead out in the D.C. office. Also coming to us from the California Cattlemen's Association, Kirk Wilbur is Vice President of Government Affairs for the association. Next, we'll have Robbie Lavallee, former range and livestock specialist from the state of Colorado, and Brady Zook, President of Wisconsin's Cattlemen's Association. Thank you all for joining us here today. Great, thank you. Thanks for having thank us. You. Yeah, it was quite an intro, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah, I, I didn't even stumble over my, my words there, so. I th- long titles. Long titles. Distinguished resumes, right? Yes, they are. And yeah, mine's pretty short. I have an MBA, Master's in Beef Advocacy. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> well, for our listeners, uh, the Endangered Species Act, uh, it was passed back in 1973 and with the real intent to protect animals and that were at risk of extinction. But since then, we all know that it truly has become a, a burdensome for livestock producers when animals are not properly delisted once they are recovered. I'm from Montana. Uh, the grizzly bear is one of those species that has recovered in that region and is currently still not delisted. But there's many other animals that we're going to talk about here today uh, that have been an issue in the past, but also been delisted thanks to, to hard uh, advocacy work on behalf of so many livestock and outdoor groups here today. Now, our, our guests are going to give us an update in their insight from their, their respective states uh, on predators like mountain lions, gray wolves, grizzly bears, vultures. And that's one thing a lot of producers in the West do not really understand are vultures and their impact on livestock as well. And uh, and that's my, my view as a Montana producer. We, we don't think about vultures, but I, I'm looking forward to that. And uh, just all these issues that truly just impact livestock production across the board. Uh, so, so Caitlin, starting with you, could, could you just share an overview of the many predators that are currently protected and where and how these species are, are continuing to just impact livestock production in the lives of cattlemen and women every day? You, you know, Lane, I, I think that the, the, situation in the U.S. is best described as everywhere and profound, right? Uh, There are more than 2,300 species, plant, animal, vertebrate, invertebrate, um, you name it, on the endangered species list. And, you know, when you look at the the patchwork of authorities, the patchwork of designations across the country, really what you see is that the whole country is affected. Um, This you know, and I think your I think your discussion earlier about the the origins of the Endangered Species Act um, really sheds a lot of light on on the discussion that we're going to have today. Fifty years ago, because we're now in 2023, 50 years ago, Congress saw a need to address imperiled species, saw a real gap in the ability to both fund and identify what some of those those key things were going to be. Um, but what we've seen over time is that the scope and the investment and the need has just continued to grow. In, 
in a way that really just hasn't been been uh, matched by either um, congressional recognition or or the process. When you're talking about predators specifically, of those 2,300, a, a lot of species can be considered predators. You know, typically, you know, I'm from Wyoming, right? You're from Montana, so we talk about the grizzly bear a lot. We talk about the wolves a lot. Uh, but you you have every corner of the country that's that's affected. Whether you're talking about wolverines and the concerns with critical habitat, you're talking about pumas uh, or or, or um, you know the other Florida panther issues on on the east coast, uh, Canada lynx, um, even you know not not something that's going to, to prey on a on a, on a calf or, or on a lamb, uh, but even black-footed ferrets are considered yep. predators in their own right, right, and and, and have that ecosystem effect you see a really profound impact on the way that cattle producers do business and the way they're able to manage those those landscapes. You know, we talk a lot about direct impacts from predation. Uh, it, it's pretty clear when you have these large predators, you know, the, the, the evidence is clear. Um, you see animals that, that have, have died. Uh, you see a fairly significant death loss. And, and the federal government has recognized that death loss and the need to compensate those producers over time, not necessarily to make those producers whole, but to certainly mitigate the impact, especially where the Endangered Species Act is concerned. But really where, where we see a gap in, in that tool or where we see a gap in that need, uh, something that we've been discussing here in, in New Orleans this week um, is are the other, uh, other maybe non-immediate impacts, the, the impacts that are, are very clear to our producers but might not show up on, on your death loss tally at the end. Uh, that's the, the, the weight loss, your, your loss in yield, the, the animal stress, uh, the additional handling that you have to do because the, you know these, these cows get pretty wild. They don't, they don't want to come in from, from pasture. Uh, and, and the additional stress and danger that is, is experienced by our producers. Uh, so there's you know the financial piece, the loss, there's the, the management piece, the additional complexity. But then there's also the investment, right? You know, the, the additional investments that producers make in infrastructure, fixing fence or creating new, new fence types, investment in livestock guardian animals, right? Uh, and, and a lot of other um, both emotional and financial investments that whether you're talking about grizzly bears or you're talking about you know, Florida panthers, uh, th- that, is, that is universal. And, it, you know... Look, I, I love talking about the things that fly, right? Um, thankfully, we don't have to talk about greater sage grouse in the ESA context, but we do have to talk about you know some some other predator species. You mentioned vultures, right? And I think one of the things that that we're we're going to continue to to see this year, um, and maybe I'm getting a little ahead of myself, but we're we're going to see an increased. Um, interaction between the Endangered Species Act and other similar laws like the Migratory Bird Treaty Act that it prevents uh, the, the management but in, in an effort to protect vultures, ravens, uh, and the like. Um, so Lane, you know, really we're, we're talking about national scope, national impact. Every single county, every single cattle producer is going to feel this one way or the other. And could you walk us through the process that it takes to actually have a species listed as threatened or endangered because uh, it seems uh, when you read about something being listed or threatened it's oh it's it's pretty easier quick I, I know it's it's not like the like I dream a genie just going like that but it goes a lot faster than the deed listing process oh, oh it does I mean and it's much more common too right you know when you look at the, the petition process because the petition process is how species are most commonly listed um, that a group of individuals or an individual um, it, you know, 
submits this petition. They say that, you know, I believe this species uh, should be protected under the ESA, and, and I believe I have information that, that warrants consideration. Uh, and so when that happens, the, the, ser the service, by law, the Fish and Wildlife Service, is compelled to act. They're compelled to consider that listing petition. Um, and, and, they, and they do that, not always in a timely manner, which results in, in lawsuits and, and additional heartache for all of us, right? But they consider five different factors in the, the listing process. We typically call that the five-factor analysis. Uh, it, you know, it has to do with things like the, the presence of, of uh, range and the habitat that's available for the, the species, whether it's an animal or a plant, um, the, the impacts, the, you know, the surface disturbance or other impacts to that habitat, um, disease or predation, where it applies, and, and a few other things as well. But, you know, it's, it's that listing process or that, that contemplation of, of what the future looks like for the species um, that, that causes and, and triggers that listing process. And that's effectively the same for, for threatened or endangered species, but everything that follows after that listing process is, is where the process diverges. And gosh, that's what, that's what gives me heartburn. <laughs> Well, I mean, you look at, uh, I, I, I want to talk about wolves, we're going to talk about mountain lions in this conversation, we'll probably touch on grizzly bears as well, but just Congress gets involved, the courts get involved, and it sometimes seems that science doesn't come to the forefront in the delisting decision. I think that's, we'll all jump into this, but I want I wanted Caitlin to really share that in-depth look at that, but it's a, it's emotion that gets involved and at political advocacy, good or bad, to the situation that really drives that delisting. You know, I, I think you're right. The, the the challenge that we have is is economic. It's emotional. You know, there's the social challenge, but then there's also the the scientific challenge. Um, you know, when when we look at the money that Congress appropriates to the service and to you know to the Department of Interior um, each year for ESA listing activities, that money is eaten up in addressing petitions or addressing you know listing actions. You know, a couple years ago, you know, I, I saw a statistic, and I'm, I'm sure it's far more expensive now, right, because inflation, right? Um, but, you know, it was something like $140,000 for the service to respond to a single petition. And the service has hundreds of petitions um, on, on an annual basis. And, you know, that cost nearly, nearly triples when you're talking about a final listing action. And so that's even before we get to the recovery piece. And so there, there is a whole machine on the economic side that, that makes the act um, less nimble, right? The social side, of course, is is the side that, that wants a federal regulatory process to guarantee an outcome. The ESA wasn't designed to guarantee an outcome. It was guaranteed to be a process, a process to identify and, and identify and assess a need to be able to develop a recovery plan and implement that recovery plan. And then once you tick the box that you've done those things, you've met your objectives to delist. And, and so often, you know, in it's both a blessing and a curse, right? You know, bald eagles and, and, and polar bears and all the rest. Um, you know, when you look at success stories that where the ESA has, has been a definitive positive factor, you know, folks want to say, I want to guarantee an outcome. I want to save this species because, you know, insert their own reason here. And so the, the delisting process is so often challenged, not because of, uh, you know, any scientific information or even economic, but just because people are afraid of the alternative. Mm -hmm. That's what we saw in, in wolves. That's what we see in bears. That's what we see in a lot of other species as well, where it's just too scary. Yeah. 
And that's where the courts get involved, right? Um, and, and, you know, we, we've seen over the last number of years, the courts get involved in cases. They, they hear case after case in multiple jurisdictions, multiple challenges, uh, where the, the jurists, the, you know, the judges are being asked to evaluate the quality of science, um, whether they believe the scientific analysis was complete, whether they believe that science was done at the right place in the right time. In, in a way that the ESA never really contemplated, right? It was a process-based statute, not a, a quality-based assessment. And so, you know, as we, as we look at where we are now, so many of, of the listing decisions, um, especially in these predator species, are really like relitigating in the courts, right? But they're, they're going back and, and trying to figure out how we make something durable with a judge who is going to look at science and say, I don't understand it, so therefore it must be insufficient. And I mean, you don't fix that through a regulatory process. You don't even fix that through a legislative process, but, but you do fix that in, in a combination of you know, all of those factors. Yep. Well, and uh, like I said, it's, it's an emotional conversation for both sides. Though th- those that want to keep a species that is recovered on the list and those that want to see it delist because they're being impacted out on the landscape. And really, everyone should be coming together to celebrate that those species are delisted. Um, and wolves, uh, you know, Montana, we battled that for a long time when the, they were first reintroduced in the early 1990s. And, uh, you know, now we do have a hunting season, but Congress had to uh, officially go through a bunch of bunch of hoops to actually approve that uh, Montana, Idaho, and Wyoming can manage their wolves. Currently, you can't manage wolves anywhere else in the U.S., and you can't hunt them, You can't, and, and our hands are tied. So that's why uh, it, it's, I, I'm excited to just talk about, you know, Wisconsin and Colorado. Colorado just had a referendum to uh, reintroduce wolves. Well, <laughs> Robbie will share with us there's already wolves in Colorado coming down from the north. And in Wisconsin, that's, that's a whole other issue that so many folks really probably don't even understand that producers are going through. But... Um, uh, Prady, I'll start with you. What What is it like, in, what, what is the situation like over in Wisconsin in terms of what these wolves look like? What are their size? Are they different from the, the hybrid wolves that we have in, in, the, in the northern Rockies? Um, but, but welcome. Yes, thanks, Lane. So when you look at the wolf uh, situation in Wisconsin, um, our last official wolf management plan that our state DNR put together, our target population was 350 wolves. That was all the major stakeholders in our state, you know, coming together and saying, this is the population target we believe we want to manage to. That was done in 1999. And here we are today in 2023, trying to get a new wolf management plan put together. But, you know, current population estimates are over 1,300 wolves based on the estimates that they can put together. Um, when I visit with you know cattlemen's members across our state, they'll say that number is probably double. That's speculation, of course, but we've really seen that wolf population expand from the northern parts of our state that have more forest, probably a better type of habitat for a wolf. They're moving south and getting closer to bigger cities like Madison and Milwaukee. Um, you know, as far as you talk about the wolf size, I mean, you can you, know, you see a coyote out in your field and you see a wolf. It's a whole different kind of story. A wolf's going to stand easily over your hip high, a head the size of a basketball, and it'll send uh, chills down your spine pretty dang quick. And we have seen some interbreeding, you know, with those populations, but our our population has just gotten so out of hand um, based on our lack of ability to manage it. Mm -hmm. 
And, and Robbie, um, as uh, the ref- referendum that was passed in Colorado to introduce wolves, um, that's a tough thing to stomach when wolves are already there. And then you have to have a management plan for that reintroduction and everything that goes along that. Can, can you just walk us through that, the, what, what the voters of Colorado put forward, but also that complexity of wolves coming in from Wyoming already? Sure. And so in Colorado, then, uh, they recently passed Prop 114, which indicated that the state would not only develop a wolf management plan, uh, but also would reintroduce wolves onto the landscape. And uh, despite the best efforts of everyone that clearly said, no, we already have wolves coming in from the north through Wyoming, we already have wolves that are coming in through Utah, and that to let them come in would be the most fair for the wolf as well as for uh, the people of Colorado, uh, the voters decided elsewhere and narrowly passed 51 to 49 percent uh, Prop 114 that did indicate that wolves would be on the ground and their uh, wolf plan would be developed. And so uh, with that understanding, uh, everyone rolled up their sleeves, our Colorado Parks and Wildlife, as well as uh, stakeholders and wolf advocates and are working on and have proposed a draft wolf management plan, which is out for comment right now. Uh, But again, it does provide that complexity of the migrating wolves versus the introduced wolves. And and how are you going to know which wolf is which when it is on the landscape? Uh, We're talking about, you know, hundreds and thousands and thousands of acres, just like the other states, the other western states, and Wisconsin as well. And so it does provide that uh, level of a complexity that, that has not clearly been answered in either the wolf management plan or any of the discussions with the officials. And uh, what are, because obviously there's depredation going on with those wolves in the state of Colorado. Um, what is that looking like? I, I know in Walden they had that, uh, was it 20? I don't even, I, I can't, I, we've reported on this on, on our network, but how much, I mean, the amount of cattle that were killed on one ranch. Right. So uh, specifically when we talk about the wolves coming down from, from Wyoming, they uh, in the worked in the North Park area just across the state line uh, around Walden. And uh, specifically, Six Head um, had to either be put down or were killed by the, the wolves that came in from, from Wyoming then. Uh, and so Six Head came and attacked uh, one in, one ranch, and um, they have not went past that ranch or went past that producer with the direct cost. It's very critical, just what Caitlin outlined. It's not only the direct, but the indirect. But other ranches around, uh, similar to what we see in, in being reported in Wyoming and, and Montana and Idaho and other places, Oregon, is that indirect cost. And so those other herds around the... Uh, the one herd in in Walden is being impacted by the by the indirect indirect costs uh, that we've talked about very specifically in the the wolf management plan and needs to be part of the conversation uh, whether it be endangered species act or or the state uh, responsibility as it as it is in Colorado now with the passage of prop 114 mm-hmm. And Brady, back to you. What what are those attacks looking like? Are 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 they uh, doing this for for joy? Because I, I know sometimes in Montana they'll they'll come through and just kill sheep or, or cattle and just leave them. Um, is it for not for joy? That that doesn't come off right for sport. There we go. That that's a better way to classify it. But what what's it looking like in in your region? Yeah. So we see you know if you look at you can pull the depredation reports from our state DNR's website and you'll see 
you know, anywhere from 25 to 50 reports on an annual basis. But I think you look at the actual, those are what, what is reported today. That's a fraction of what's actually happening. Um, we see, do see a big spike, of course, in the springtime. Most of our producers are spring calving, so we'll see a lot of attacks, you know, on those young calves. Um, but you can see all the way up to, you know, pack attacking, you know, large, mature, you know, mature cattle, right? Um, so it's very, I think a major issue been in our state is that producers have been so frustrated with the process of reporting a depredation that, you know, knowing that there could be potential compensation, but it's not going to deal with the long-term issues that Robbie very well outlined earlier. And so they kind of just throw their hands up and say, you know, this isn't getting us anywhere. And especially we, we use a term in, in, in Wisconsin, the chronic farms that have multiple attacks over and over. And it seems like you mentioned, you know, they, they find a farm that's either easy for them to attack the cattle or they find it's just, you know, easy pickings. Mm-hmm. And they will continually attack that same herd over and over and over again. You'll see them listed multiple times in depredation reports and extremely frustrating for those producers. And uh, I'm not familiar with your state's compensation of that. It, I, and you talk about it's just difficult to do. Is it even worth the while for the producers to apply for that. I mean, when you lose livestock, it's it's horrible and it's a financial hit, but the amount of time that goes into it, what, what is the talk with your fellow producers about that? Yeah, so well, we kind of throughout, the, they'll collect the depredation reports throughout the year and then there'll, there'll be a payout period, usually towards the end of the year. So I think it helps them get their hands around the number of depredations they have to pay. Uh, so I talked to the producer this morning, Jack Johnson uh, from North Central Wisconsin. I uh, had a Hereford calf um, that was, you know, killed by a wolf, and later that year he um, received about $400 in compensation. This had been about a year ago, so you know it's a little something to cover the loss there, but it's not the, what it cost him to feed that cow all winter. What does he do with this cow now that doesn't have a calf to go yeah. with her? And so, you know, I think that one thing that is important to note, you know, Jackson, the process itself. Um, so our state partners with the USDA Wildlife Services to investigate the depredations. He said the folks that came to his farm were very willing to work with him and document the situation, which I thought was very good to hear from Jack's perspective. Um, you know, and it's a little bit of it's a little bit of monetary compensation, but I also asked Jack, you know, how else do you put a value on the, the rest of the damage? And he goes, he asked me back. He said, how do how do I put a value that I don't sleep at night? Because every time I hear the cattle beller one time, 10:30, he goes, I, I'm up, I'm awake thinking something else could be going on. I think it's really hard to put a cost on the, mm-hmm. you know, the stress that it puts on our producers dealing with these issues. Yeah. Uh, and, and Robbie, what's that like in Colorado right now for for wolves? Is there anything in place like we have the Montana, the Livestock Loss Board? Well, that is what is being drafted in the wolf management plan. I mean, currently we do have the Parks and Wildlife has a game damage program, which is primarily lion and, and bear. And so that is what they're using for the base. Now, uh, in the draft plan, we've taken it a step farther and actually started to introduce a system that will address the indirect cost if a producer can clearly show those those decreased conception rate or weaning weights and, and that, then there are those dollars and process for to compensate for that. However, in in Colorado, then, it's based on the willingness of the General Assembly to fund that through allocation of the general fund. And so we know down the road that there will not always be that interest in wolves. And so will there be their interest in actually getting general fund money? But that is that is again what we're what we're all looking at and, and working very diligently on is making sure that the funding lasts past one year at a time. Uh, 
Brady brings up a great point that we're seeing uh, played out over and over. It's just that emotional toll uh, that is very close and dear to the producers there in, in Colorado. And I know other producers in, in Wyoming have told me similar s- stories. It's, it's that emotional toll when you literally see an animal suffering. Uh, there is a significant emotional toll that, that is not often told uh, at numerous around the around the table when talking to those individuals that just think that if you introduce a wolf the ecosystem will be balanced Mm -hmm. well and that's one thing too their behaviors uh are are so much different than they were years ago too towards humans towards livestock especially when it's easy pickings um but uh and brady and robbie both you you really can't do anything if you see a wolf attacking your livestock at this point is that correct you can you can't you can't harvest a wolf when it's attacking your livestock it's correct says they are federally protected now um, we as producers if we see a wolf attack are supposed to just sit and watch that event happen which thankfully i've never had to do that in our operation but boy that'd be awful hard to do that um, there is no lethal means to deal with the problem yep. wolf today but uh, that's where wildlife services would come in if they were a problem conduct a, an investigation and then they would work with u.s fish and wildlife services to then decide if they were going to make a cull of, of that pack or, or try to go around that. Is, is that how the process works for you all? Well, today, the way I understand, they're not able to, you know, remove. Or okay. In the past in Wisconsin, they had done some trapping and relocation of wolves. So mainly what they'll do today, if there's a confirmed depredation, um, they'll either hang some kind of red streamer type of deals on a fence as a deterrent method, or they put a, um, shoe. a flashing light shoe or a uh, kind of like a, noisemaker um, out there or they encourage the producers to bring the cattle closer to buildings and facilities which kind of defeats the whole purpose of our grazing management and I think that's you know why producers are so reluctant to call in, in a depredation okay. because these these methods that we're deploying just simply aren't effective it's different for bears I guess where you can the, where the state or the feds can step in and if they need to take a problem grizzly bear out um, Caitlin, did you have anything you want to add? I haven't let Kirk talk yet. I promise I'm going to go let you talk. But, Caitlin, uh, do you want to correct anything that I was uh, – just some of my misinformation I just asked? No, no, not, no corrections here. Um, you know, I think probably one of my favorite stories, I think it was – it's a Migratory Bird Treaty Act, but some of the deterrents that have been suggested to our, our producers across the country, um, you know, go down to the used car sales lot and get the inflatable arm flailing tube man. Yeah, exactly. Um, and, you know, as, as a deterrent to, to her harass the species away um <laughs> but you know I, I think and i think this is what kirk is going to tell you but but definitely when you're talking about some of the, the larger predators here that have been you know on the list and off the list and on the list and off the list and on the list again and then just sort of in limbo um, is that it's really unclear what what those tools are you know and, and when you have a, a state-by-state approach um to uh, either delistings or approvals or dps's uh, you know it, it is sometimes an easier regulatory mechanism but gosh it makes it hard to have a, a consistent resource um so it's it, i mean it's tough all around but you know to be able to to provide our producers some certainty you've got to be able to have some of those those mitigation measures built in yep and Kirk, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> now, uh, being from California, uh, mountain lions are, are managed much differently, obviously, in the state of California than other western states or, or states across the nation, because uh, they've been protected under state law since before I was born in, in 1990. Uh, c- could you talk about how that came about and, and just the impact that it's having now? Yes, I can. And, and I think uh, part of the story of how it came about 
really shed some light onto the challenges that producers are experiencing today in 2023. Uh, proposition 117 was the proposition that went before voters uh, that created a special protected status for mountain lions in the state of California. Uh, that was put on the ballot by the Mountain Lion Foundation. One of the founders of the Mountain Lion Foundation was Governor Gavin Newsom's father. So I think part of the political policy issue that you see these days with mountain lions in California probably does owe some of you know uh, its, its origin to that familial link to mountain lions uh, in California. And again, you, you see mountain lions being very popular in the state. Uh, when P-22 passed away recently, a very famous uh, mountain lion in the state of California, Adam Schiff and others were tweeting out eulogies to the animals. So because there is this sort of popular sentiment in favor of mountain lions in the state of California, you had Proposition 117 on the ballot back in 1990. Uh, Proposition 117, as originally implemented, wasn't all that problematic for my cattle producers. And the reason for that was it was really intended to prevent hunting, particularly hunting with dogs. Uh, and there is explicit uh, allowance within Proposition 117 that allows a livestock producer to protect their animals from mountain lions. And that was also in the literature that went before voters. So it was very clear, we still want producers to be able to protect themselves from mountain lions. But of course, mountain lions have become more popular in the state of California since 1990. The state has become even more urban since 1990. So there have been some policy shifts that in California that have really made it more difficult for producers to protect their livestock. Those have occurred in 2013, 2017, 2020. I'm just really quickly gonna overview a couple of those. There was a proposal in 2020 that's still working its way through our California Fish and Game Commission to list a uh, ESU, I I'm blanking on the phrase, uh, environmentally significant unit, unit, ecologically yeah. significant yeah. unit, I apologize, uh, in the Central Coast in Southern California as a threatened species under our state endangered species act uh, that is still working its way and of course uh, because proposition 117 is on the books any management of mountain lions would have to comply with prop 117 but we've seen the california department of fish and wildlife get really creative with how they implement proposition 117. Uh, they have to allow take of mountain lions if there is a kill uh, of a cow or other livestock but take is a broadly defined term uh, it can include pursuit. So you see the Department of Fish and Wildlife in that ESU area in the Central Coast in Southern California having what they call a stepwise process. We call it a three strikes process. Uh, on the first instance, when you have a mountain lion kill a cow, you can perhaps pursue that animal or use some of the uh, non-lethal deterrent measures that were spoken about with regard to wolves. On the second incident, you may be able to shoot it with a, you know, uh, a pellet gun, uh, something along those lines. You may be able to do something that is more uh, severe in terms of take, but is not lethal take. And only if you have three kills from the same mountain lion within a relatively short period of time will they then consider a lethal take permit. But that has to go up to the highest echelons of the Department of Fish and Wildlife for approval. In the rest of the state, where we also have mountain lion problems, they have a two-step process. And what you really see at the Department of Fish and Wildlife is, yes, they are technically complying with Proposition 117 because they are permitting take, but they are doing everything in their power in the state of California to prevent lethal take that is really the best management option for those mountain lions. And how do you prove which lion killed which livestock? And, and that's that, the that rub. probably always gets brought up. We recently, uh, 
you know, I, I obviously represent cattle producers, uh, but we had some sheep producers contact us. Uh, in Lake County, California, mountain lions have recently killed dozens of lambs. And part of the reason that they have not been given a lethal take permit by the Department of Fish and Wildlife to date is because they have said, how do you, you know, how do you know that's one animal that you can go after and make sure uh, you're, you're taking the right animal and preventing those further depredations. So what are the, the numbers, I guess, uh, per year that uh, can be attributed to uh, mountain lion kills in California? So in terms of... Actually reported or confirmed. Right. Yeah. In terms of depredations, I don't have those numbers because, you know, if you get a take permit for those two dozen sheep uh, that were killed in Lake County, that counts as one take permit. Uh, the most recent numbers I have are 2020. The Department of Fish and Wildlife authorized 249, I believe was the number, uh, take permits. Only about 50 of those were successfully executed. Uh, we know that number is much higher, partly because what I just described. Mm -hmm. It is so difficult and frankly just so frustrating for producers to go through that process of getting a take permit when they know they're never going to be able to lethally take that animal anyway, that most don't bother reporting in the first place. Uh, but we have had, uh, in recent years, 249 or so, you know, 250 to 300 take permits authorized. We know the problem is much more significant for that. And, and maybe you can't speak to this, but w what is the outdoor community, the hunting groups for, for, for deer? Uh, because I know in Montana, biologists say that a mountain lion will kill one deer a week. Uh, and maybe maybe it's every two weeks. I think it's about one deer a week. And we had uh, a female with three juvenile uh, mountain lions on, on our creek, and it depleted our whitetail population for about five miles. And I would say it was almost one every other day or more. And the mount uh, and and even the uh, so the whitetail on the bottom, but our mule deer up top also were impacted by that. So what? Obviously, this has to have an impact on the wildlife populations, too, in your state. What, what's the discussion? It does. I, I haven't heard much recently from the sportsmen's groups uh, because, you know, they lost this battle back in 1990 mm -hmm. when this ballot proposition was put forth. Uh, I do hear it more often when it, when it comes to wolves in California and other predator species. We have actually a very low population of deer and elk, uh, ungulate species, in California. It's part of the reason that we are so challenged when we have wolves reemerge in the state or when we have mountain lions fully protected as a specially protected species uh, because there are so few wildlife out there mm -hmm. that are the natural prey for these animals that they really have no opportunity other than to chronically go after livestock producers for their meals. Uh, so I haven't heard much from the sportsmen groups, particularly with regard to mountain lions. I do hear from them with regard to wolves, for instance. They were part of a broad coalition that involved the California Cattlemen's Association really trying to uh, prevent listing of the gray wolf under the California Endangered Species Act, which unfortunately we failed to succeed mm -hmm. in preventing that happening. Uh, but certainly we do see really damaging effects on our wildlife populations from any number of large predator species. Uh, that has really just decimated those populations in the state. Right now, some of the places where we have mountain lions are not places where we have uh, many ungulates, uh, which is why you see often they'll be going after rodents and you, you start to see rodenticides uh, in those necropsies and, and whatnot. But the bottom line is uh, we do not have the natural prey base for mountain lions or other species in high numbers in the state of California. So there really has just been an increase 
in depredations of cattle, of sheep, because there's no other opportunity for them to get their meals. Well, and it's just, yeah, I would assume that also the, the, the deaths of people's pets are also on an increase in those more urban areas as well. You think that would maybe have people, you know, a lot of people call their pets their children. Um, what, what, what is the reaction, I guess, when that happens from some people? So occasionally, uh, I'm not going to speak about the pets initially. Occasionally in California, there have been attacks on children yes, yeah. by mountain lions. And there is usually some outcry uh, in the localized community. But as I mentioned, these animals have been given celebrity status in mm -hmm. the state of California. So the public, for the most part, wants to put that onus on the parent of the child, the owner of the pet, the owner of the livestock. Uh, you know, I, I think it's one of those things when it happens to you, it hits home. Mm -hmm. But until that happens, they are happy to have, you know, the utmost protections from mountain lions. I actually received a uh, email last year from a college professor who really wanted to fight the Department of Fish and Wildlife on its management of mountain lions because his dogs had been killed by mountain lions. Mm -hmm. uh, so it is something we know happens with frequency. You see mountain lions more and more in urban areas, uh, but folks, for the most part, until it is their family member, until it is their pet, until it is their livestock, they're happy to do nothing about it. Yep. And, and I guess this brings it back to Washington, D.C. with Caitlin and, and the work that she and her team do out in Washington, D.C. to help producers with so many different regulations, but more in particular to these predators. Well, what is uh, NCBA PLC doing to uh, really work with these partners to protect their interests uh, of, uh, of their livelihoods, but, but also the cattle and, and sheep with, with PLC's perspective that, that they care for? So I think that's a really, a really interesting question, right? Because so many of the impacts of the ESA are are far away from Washington, right? Um, and so when when NCBA looks at how we can be most helpful to individual producers, to state associations, into the issue writ large, um, I really sort of bucket this out into three categories. Um, first is the producer support, right? You know, what what can we do to work with USDA, to work with Wildlife Services, to work with states to make sure that your your depredation compensation programs, that that financial loss, even that producer stress loss, Brady, that you were talking about is, is, is mitigated somehow and that tools are available. A lot of those are exist through federal appropriations and through you know other federal authorities. So we work on, on those regulatory and legislative activities all the time. Uh, you know, when it comes to, to state associations, you, I, I think there's in-state regulatory support, right? Because there there is a little bit of, of mission creep, uh, just like, you know, predators don't respect boundaries. Sometimes these issues tend to creep over the, the border a little bit. You know, and what really struck me, Kirk, is that, I mean, you're talking about a, a state endangered species authority. Um, and a lot of states have endangered species lists or authorities that, that aren't, are, are in your own state have impacts on your surrounding states and sometimes are in direct conflict with the federal endangered species act that makes this this conversation so much harder to to have um in you know in the realm of of, of reality right for for and in reasonable and common sense um and and so really i think where our focus is going to be this year uh is is taking advantage of the 50th anniversary of the Endangered Species Act. Being able to look back and say, look, you know, with Congress, we have come pretty darn close several times to making some improvements, to addressing some of the key pinch points 
that make the Endangered Species Act such um, a, such a hard conversation topic to have. Uh, there is, you know, a, there, there is a, a partisan divide sometimes in, in Congress when, when we start talking about reforms or, or improvements or uh, modernization to, to the Endangered Species Act. But because of a lot of different authorities, right, because we're going to be talking about the Farm Bill, because we're talking about an increase in the public's interaction with nature and therefore with predators, um, you, you know, you, you have a different platform to be able to identify those pinch points when, when it comes down to the to the ESA's 50th anniversary. The, you know, our, our key concepts, our, our key pinch points um, and priorities stay the same, right? Elevating state leadership in, uh, in, in recovery of species, leading recovery teams, making sure that the solutions that are, are proffered and funded uh, are, are, are workable in the state. You know, wolf management looks a lot different in Wyoming or Montana than it does in Wisconsin or Minnesota. Uh, certainly Florida panther conservation recovery looks a heck of a lot different than, than mountain lions in, in California, although some of those tools and authorities might be parallel, right, or might be the same. I think that the consultation process between states and, and feds will continue to be important. Um, and, and then really making sure that there is a, a clear legislative direction and and legal um, precedential support for that delisting process because that delisting process is is really the, the the piece of this that's that's probably the hardest right making sure that the agency prioritizes species for delisting has the tools has the resources available to make those delistings stick and then a very clear direction to the courts as well that when there is a, a body of science that meets these specific criteria um, in in the recovery plan that the delisting shall um, sh shall and, and, and must withstand judicial review all of those are things that we have been talking about really since since probably the 90s uh, but how that is written in legislative language will continue to change our priority in Washington is to make sure that there is more regulatory certainty than less. Uh, and so, you know, while Congress is having these conversations, while the agency is talking about their anniversary uh, and going through their own regulatory process, uh, our, our message continues to be the same. Whether you're talking about uh, you know, habitat and, and the habitat that is, is key for a number of species, or whether you're talking uh, about the the ability to lead in a in a meaningful way that the science for recovery, you know, there there is a, a single group who is is best poised to to, to support to lead um, to to really sort of blaze the path. Um, you see the full picture in the livestock industry. You see the expertise uh, around this table, myself not included, right? You, know, you see the expertise, the, the, um, the, the leadership and the long history of, of pretty clear common sense. Um, and that, that has to be at the top of the agency's priority list. Now, from a more local regional perspective, uh, what are some of the campaigns or advocacy that each of your state and, and, and state associations and affiliates are, are working on, on on public awareness or are working with legislators that are willing to listen and advocate on your behalf? Uh, uh, Brady, I'll, I'll start with you. Yep. So as I mentioned earlier, Lance, we're right now working on our, our, our state DNR has released their proposed 2023 wolf management plan. Um, there's several key pieces in there that we're very concerned about, the utmost being that there is no population target set. It's a ambiguous, healthy, sustainable population, and I forget the exact wording, but 
it's pretty hard to fail a test when there's no grading rubric, isn't yeah. there? Yeah. And so we're really, uh, from, a, from our State Academies Association, really engaging in that process. We also have a new secretary of our DNR, um, so kind of two, two uh, dynamics happening there at once, also engaging uh, with the incoming secretary. And also we do quite a bit of partnership with other ag groups and also um, the hunting groups, so our wildlife conservation groups, um, our Bear Hunters Association, for example, that does a lot of uh, bear hunting with dogs, and they've had a lot of issues with wolf depredation really partnering with those other state level groups and having you know public out or public listening sessions unfortunately our state dnr doesn't usually come to those but we can at least get folks together you know, to share the issues that they're having and we're really encouraging our members you know to make sure that our our opinions as cattle producers are heard because unfortunately um, we do have a seat at table out of those wolf management boards a seat on those boards but when i talk to the producers that represent cattlemen's and they listen to the testimony 90 to 95% of what is shared is in favor of unlimited wolf population, no management. So we're trying to be as loud as we can in that five to 10% that we do cover. And Robbie, obviously from um, the Colorado Cattlemen's Association and the other groups out there trying to have a be a voice for producers in the countryside in this draft plan that uh, is currently underway in Colorado. What what is some of the work that the livestock groups are doing in in, in the state? Sure, and so it's a it's a combined effort. It is Colorado Cattlemen's, Colorado Public Lands Council, Colorado Wool Growers, Colorado Farm Bureau, as well as partnering with our our sportsmen's groups and uh, our county commissioners. Uh, really, there is a strong coalition to say we, uh, the, you know, even though, again, a slim majority voted for this, they voted for it, but not in their backyard. They put it in somebody else's backyard. They put it on the western slope where there is the primary is the is a federal land. And so working again with that coalition that, that spans many uses, uh, really to hammer home the point that the, the wolf management plan has to include uh, those direct and indirect costs, that the ability to be able to take advantage of the indirect and indirect cost is not dependent upon that you put all of the non-lethal deterrence up when the wolves may be 200 miles away. And so all of those things we're working very hard on, as well as to continue to, to hammer home the point that, you know, our ecosystem is not uh, broken. It it did not need the, the wolf because that tends to be what some other agencies will pick up and, and try to make for their case to carry on as we see this species down the road. And then to highlight those very uh, direct conflicts with the existing Endangered Species Act, uh, primarily in on the western slope, the threatened species of the Gunnison sage-grouse. And uh, there was no consideration the impact of that wolf on the another uh, threatened species. So. You know, at the end of the day, like uh, Caitlin also always says, which species wins and at what cost? Mm -hmm. And uh, who approves that plan then? So that plan will go to the Colorado Parks and Wildlife Commission and uh, then on to our DNR, Department of Natural Resources. Okay. Yep. Now, obviously, Kirk, uh, since the 90s, this has been an issue, but uh, just continuing to have that engagement uh, with, with officials, with the public in California, what is that like? What are the struggles? But what are also those bright spots in these types of conversations to also shine a positive light back onto agriculture? Yeah, and, and if you don't mind, I'm, I'm going to 
expand this more broadly than just speaking about uh, mountain lions, because I, I think there's some lessons here with regard to wolves as well in the state of California. What we at the California Cattlemen's Association have really focused on doing is spending our time, our attention, our resources on battles we can win. Uh, we know that we're not going to convince voters in LA or legislators from LA to delist the gray wolf from the California Endangered Species Act or to repeal Proposition 117, uh, which has allowed CDFW, the California Department of Fish and Wildlife, to not issue some of those lethal take permits, for instance. So what we've done, for instance, with regard to the wolf, we know it's going to stay fully protected in the state of, state of California. We focused more on compensation plans, for instance. We know that uh, isn't a solution to the problem, but it can at least help address some of the impacts for our producers. Uh, so right now, the California Department of Fish and Wildlife has a compensation grant program uh, that was authorized by some legislation passed, uh, I believe, in 2020 uh, to the tune of $6 million, and hopefully we can get that made permanent down the road uh, to just provide some relief for those folks. That is one place where we can bring legislators together uh, and find a way to at least soften the blow for our producers. With regard to mountain lions, uh, again, you know, that is a fully specially protected species in California. I don't see any way in which we change that. And frankly, if we open it up in the legislature, if we open it up at the ballot box, they probably get even more protections yeah. rather than fewer protections. Uh, so what we're focused on there is I'm pretty good at working with the California Department of Fish and Wildlife to make sure that folks get the, the full, you know, take permit authorization that is allowed to them under the law and really uh, pressing regional officials or state officials at CDFW to make sure that they are actually doing what they are legally required to do to allow my members to take, whether it's lethal or not, those mountain lions that are causing problems. So I think when we're talking about what state associations can do with regard to these animals, one thing for producers, for producer members to remember, we're here for you. Give me a call at the California Cattlemen's Association if you are frustrated with your regional Department of Fish and Wildlife office. If you're having issues that Caitlin, myself, your other state staff can help with, call us up and we're happy to walk you through that process. I think very often we're going to have the mechanisms to get you those solutions you know, while you're busy on the range. Mm -hmm. Now, Caitlin, as we mentioned earlier, there, there's a lot of ESA protected species out there from apex predators to toads. I mean, uh, it, it, it truly is wild to, 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 to really look at the, the depth of what is a threatened or endangered species. But uh, obviously for, for just people in Montana, Wyoming, Montana, the, a big apex predator is, is the grizzly bear. And, uh, you know, we're starting to have them come into our country right off the Rocky Mountain front. They have no respect for humans. They're not scared of humans. They, you know, burrow into the silage uh, uh, piles and they're getting into the, the grain bins and they're just getting fat and um, they're not scared of humans. And that's that's the biggest thing. And we have seen human deaths uh, over uh, Ovando, Montana. Um, a bicyclist was pulled out of her tent after initially scaring the bear off. This was last year. The bear comes back and, and kills her. Um, Obviously, we had always say, well, nothing's going to really change until people get killed. Well, there has been deaths due to, to these apex predators. Um, I, I know you have a great working relationship with Senator Brasso out of Wyoming, and he's a, a big advocate for delisting and looking at science. What, what, what is that looking like going ahead for delisting a species like the grizzly bear? 
Um, some people had said the wolf would never be delisted, um, and it has been. And uh, state management in three states is congressionally approved. Uh, what What is the talk in D.C. with the people that see the importance of having a species recover but taking them off the list once they are recovered? Man, you're, you're just you're just asking me to do do a, a lot of crystal ball math. Uh, yes, I am. I mean, because <laughs> all I have to do is ask the questions. You a- know? Absolutely. <laughs> you, you know, I, I think the the really interesting thing about a legislative delisting um, is that conditions have to be exactly right. You have to have a vehicle. It's never going to pass on its own, right? Conditions have to be exactly right that a majority, and and in the Senate, a a larger majority of the members, in the House, a simple majority uh, of the members, you know, believe that this is the right way to do something, and the president has to agree to do it, or you have to have, you know, the math to, to override a veto, right? Or you have to bury it into a package um, that it is going that you know the parliamentarian is not going to pull it out, right? And and I don't pretend to to be a parliamentarian, um, but but they have uh, used a, a fairly fine tooth comb over the last couple of years. They don't use Boppy's rules of order. They they do use Roberts. Yeah. Y- you know, I, I think there are um, there are a lot of rules, and thankfully I don't have to know them all. Um, but you, you know what? I, but I think. You know, not to be punny here, but but I think what the, the rule of thumb here is that when you are talking about a legislative delisting, uh, it is an incredibly uphill battle. I, I think, you know, when you're talking about what is going to change things, I'm saying that in, in, in air quotes here, what, what is going to change things, really what's going to change when there are human impacts is public sentiment. And public sentiment is going to inform the legislative process, certainly. But you, you have, I think, a, a, an outsized ability at the state level to to influence either you know um, reintroductions or, or introductions as in the case of Colorado to influence state policy you know what that Kirk was talking about or, or even to have a, a groundswell of support for producers in a in a population that is widely you know recognized as, as recovered and, and warranting delisting Brady and so your change in public sentiment I think is is slow but it's it's coming sort of around the corner I think as you look at this Congress, as we sit in January 2023, uh, a legislative delisting is going to be incredibly hard. Uh, I think there are, there inevitably are going to be members who introduce a bill to delist uh, the, the grizzly bear, to delist uh, gray wolf wherever it is across the range, Mexican gray wolf, and, and a number of others as well, usually large predators. Um, but that is an incredibly uphill battle. You have an incredibly slim majority uh, in the House of Republicans who are, are typically more likely to to support a legislative delisting Uh, and you have a senate uh environment public works chairman who is and was uh several years ago really motivated to work on esa issues uh, but likely is not going to to let something like this go especially in a year where you have the the 50th anniversary some will call a celebration of uh, a foundation foundational conservation environmental law I think I think it's an uphill battle here, but what I where I think we're seeing some really huge shifts are in the court system. Um, without getting too political and wonky here, uh, the Senate over the last number of years has spent a lot of time confirming judges uh, and, and judges who are the arbiter of a lot of these decisions. Uh, we saw some pretty favorable decisions out of the Ninth Circuit last year with respect to representing ranchers' rights and CBA being allowed as an intervener in the Gray Wolf delisting case. Uh, saw some some really surprising and, and, and nice uh, words given to the three consolidated ESA cases 
Texas and the Northern District of California. Um, and, and so the, the tide is turning, but in some, some unexpected places. Yeah, who would have thought of that 10 years ago in, in that circuit? I, I, I thought that I was having a fever dream. Nice, <laughs> nice, uh, ni- nice words for out of the Ninth Circuit and, and favorable decisions, two in a, a single week. Man. I would have thought it was impossible. Yeah. Well, obviously, it's, this is very, again, like I said at the beginning of our talk today, it's, a, it's an emotional issue. It's emotional for people that are invested in, into seeing an animal that they feel they are invested in and seeing that recovery. I think Caitlin did a really good job describing that, but uh, people are just so disconnected from that rural livestock production as well that uh, they, they don't understand all the risk that goes in that too. And, and uh, a friend of mine, Trina Joe Bradley, she sits on the state of Montana's governor's uh, grizzly bear advisory committee. She ranches on the Rocky Mountain front and she goes, my kid, her daughter cannot play outside on their ranch because they have grizzly bears that close to their house. And she goes, her safety is paramount. She goes, my child has never been able to play outside by herself or enjoy herself on their own, in their own yard. And, uh, and a lot of people uh, will say, well, maybe you just need to move or you need to do this or that. And people can coexist. They can. There's great examples of that. But uh, there's a lot more options and management options when a species can be managed by the state or uh, a livestock producer can can protect their livestock. I believe in Montana, and I could be totally wrong in this. You can only protect your, yourself if a grizzly bear is attacking yourself or your dog. And I could be totally wrong in that, but I believe it's yourself or your dog. But you can't protect your livestock. So that's and again, let me know if that's not right. But I believe that's what I was told. But I am not a I am not a full-on scholar of ESA on that front of the state of Montana. But uh, any last thoughts before uh, I'm rambling at this point, so it's probably best I I let the the guests conclude our talk today. But any last thoughts you'd just like to share with our audience out there? Brady, you're you're shifting. I'll let you go first. Yeah, um, yeah, I think we just look forward to getting back to a time, you know, in our state where where we can have that control when wolves are federally delisted, you know, have that management back at our state level. We have the folks within our DNR that are working throughout our state know the issue in Wisconsin and we can work together as cattle producers their DNR and our, po- our general population work together to find that that balance we can coexist the Cattlemen's Association never said no wolves um, but a reasonable number that balances everyone's interest and truly I think balances everybody's interest not the ones that speak the loudest you know in their open listening sessions Kurt closing thoughts yeah so just you know piggybacking off of what Caitlin said uh, about, you know, a shift in public perception. Uh, Again, I don't see the public perception in California changing so much that uh, wolves or mountain lions lose their protections. But I think uh, there is a chance for increased collaboration across the aisle, so to speak. Uh, One group that we uh, clashed with pretty strongly during the wolf listing process, for instance, was Defenders of Wildlife. Uh, They were very pro listing of the gray wolf. We were very anti-listing of the gray wolf. Uh, But in the years since it was listed, uh, they have come to realize the conservation value that ranchers provide. So in the state of California, they actually have purchased a large amount of the fladry that has been donated to wildlife services to help uh, deter wolves from ranches. Uh, They have been supportive of a compensation program. So I think there are opportunities with that shift in public perception to at least collaborate on 
kind of creative solutions to some of these predator issues. Uh, it may not always look like delisting, but I think there is a chance uh, for folks to increase understanding across the aisle and work to better the situation, both for those that are pro the wildlife species we're talking about and those that are pro ranching. Robbie, any, any last thoughts or just anything that uh, the great folks in Colorado are, are working on just uh, to represent the livestock industry? Uh, thanks. And again, I, I just appreciate the words of, of everyone around the, the table here and, and just the good work that, that is going on. I, uh, it has been rewarding as we've moved through this process to, to really to really broaden that scope and, and help individuals understand that you know why we are so concerned about the welfare and health of our animals and and why having that intensive management of our federal public lands allotments uh, is impacted by by the predators and by the presence of the predators and so they we have been able to provide education in all of this but I do think it's going to take that continued effort and that continued concentration uh, especially when we think about uh, modifying any language at all in the Endangered Species Act. It's, it is going to be an uphill battle, but it is one that everyone around this table I know is, is well committed to, to, to continue on, that we can live with them, but we have to have the tools available uh, to live with them. Caitlin, I know uh, PLC members and NCBA members will be heading out to D.C. for the, the annual legislative fly-ins. Uh, how important is it for that for for folks to come out there and share their experiences of what it's like to have a depredation what it's like to have cows or heifers or steers that just got ran around a pen all night by wolves and a producer lost a majority of their profit because of that and and the breed back and everything like that how important is that for producers to share firsthand with elected and appointed uh, agency officials and also just any last thoughts from your perspective in the dc office you know, Lane, I think you outlined something that I'm just going to put a little bit of a finer point on. The, the stories of producers who experience depredation, those who have been engaged in the development of state wolf management plans or uh, the depredation compensation programs, or those who are, are actively working, as, as your folks are in, in Colorado, Robbie, to um, working on plans to reintroduce out of, out of need, maybe not, not out of uh, you know, individual desire, but, but willing to be involved in the process. Uh, it, it is a testament to how important these management factors are. Uh, managing predator conflict uh, is, it, it is and, and will continue to be a factor uh, in production scenarios. It shouldn't be something that either taxes or regulates somebody out of business. Uh, as, as cattle producers, as livestock producers work to manage these landscapes, uh, it shouldn't be something that the ESA should, should never be the thing that makes them unable to do the good work that they do. So when, you know, when, when our, our farmers, when our ranchers, when our permittees are, are meeting with their members of Congress, not only talking to them about the real personal impacts, the stress, the, the, the costs, but also to connecting those with solutions that you as a member of Congress have the ability to change this reality, not by getting rid of them, but by finding a, a balance, finding a moderated balance, a better legislative construct so that I, as a producer, all of my colleagues as producers can stop talking to you about this because I know that that's probably what a lot of them would like. Finding that moderated solution, finding that middle ground, but then offering the very clear connection between significant impacts and what the future could look like. Yep. 
When's the flying going to happen for PLC? Well, so come on down or over or up, as it were. We're in <laughs> New Orleans uh, to, to Washington, D.C. We're going to be meeting the last week in April, April 24th and 25th. Uh, we're going to be having some, some great conversations with our friends at Wildlife Services and certainly the Fish and Wildlife Service on a lot of these issues, but then really trying to get them some help or motivation depending on the, the, the agency, uh, from, from their members of Congress and their delegations. Yeah. This issue creates some unholy or holy alliances, some, some strange partnerships. Uh, and I think this Congress, there's a, there's a massive opportunity to capitalize on those. Well, again, uh, for, for more on that legislative conference for both uh, NCBA and PLC, visit publiclandscouncil.com and the ncba.org and, and just learn more about those because hearing firsthand from producers is so important. And for our producers listening in that can't make it to Washington, D.C., participate in your state calling on the Capitol or boots on the hill type days to, to be engaged and uh, during those legislative times. Uh, in Montana, we only have a legislature every other year, so it's always important to, to, to take time to do that. But uh, I want to thank the four of you for joining us here today. I know it's always busy during Cattle Industry Convention when this conversation was, was had, but it uh, gives us a break from walking around all day. So uh, thanks for sharing your hour with us and your perspectives. And, and hopefully for our listeners, whether you're in livestock production or just interested in what we do in livestock production, I hope this was an educational experience on, on what so many producers uh, go through just to be able to, to, to help feed the world, take care of our natural resources, and be stewards of our land for that next generation. Thank, thank you all for joining us. Thanks, thank Lane. Thanks for having us. Friends, that will do it for today's Cattleman's Call podcast. I'm Lane Northland. We'll catch you next time. Thanks for tuning in to NCBA's Cattleman's Call podcast with Lane Nordland. For more information, visit ncba.org and make sure to subscribe to the podcast today.